Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, time to take a look at how things are looking with the finances in Vancouver and the budget outlook, which says that property tax hikes of about 9% will be needed over the next four years to do to deal with the increasing costs and not as much revenue as perhaps hoped for. Joining us on the line now to talk a bit more about this is Pete Fry, a Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor Fry, thanks so much for your time today. Hi, Joe. Happy uh, to be here. Well, thanks for doing this. This is a 16-page report taking a look at the, the information going forward, the financial outlook of the city. Uh, with the That number, I think, is going to stick out to a lot of people, that property tax hikes of about 9% for the next few years will be needed. Can you talk a little bit more about how that number was reached? Well, so this has just been published on our agenda. In fact, we have a staff briefing uh, later today to go over a little bit more of the specifics uh, before we receive it at council for further discussion next week. Um, so there's there's quite a bit to unpack. I think the, the big takeaway, too, is that, that this is we're also going to see increased fees coming from Metro as well. So this is we're, we're, we're starting to face this pretty serious reality uh, that we've underfunded a lot of infrastructure and that that you know, combined with keeping up with some of the commitments that were made by the, the new mayor and council, um, we're having to figure out ways to pay for a lot of this stuff, and it is going to cost money. Um, the, the big one, I think, that is, is really driving a lot of this is obviously inflation and, and, and wage pressures and that kind of thing, but infrastructure. And we really are seeing, like, a critical need for infrastructure renewal across our, our system and across Metro Vancouver, and, and that costs a significant amount of money. Right. And one of the the lines in this as well says that the outlook for operating expenditures is driven by higher fixed costs to provide existing service levels. Um, And then I think something you just referenced there, it talks about the key initiatives from the 2023 budget, such as the hiring of additional police officers, renewal of infrastructure and public amenities and Metro Vancouver levies. So so is that kind of what's what's pushing this then or or which what is kind of pushing to to have those higher taxes to cover those costs? Well, that, that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, the infrastructure, we're, we're going to see a lot of changes as far as um, the kind of assistance that that Metro regional district gave for things like water hookup and those for on new construction is going to, the, the cost of that is going to raise significantly. And, and, you know, all, all this is to say that, that, um, these 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 pressures are real, and 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 cities everywhere are really struggling with how to pay for infrastructure renewal. Um, so we need, uh, I think, there's a lot of conversation around how we need new tools and we need new, different levels of support from senior government, um, especially when we start getting these sort of housing housing targets that are the cities being asked to meet. Um, we need the infrastructure to support uh, the increase in population that we're expecting in the, in the coming decade. And when you talk about things like water hookup and levies from Metro Vancouver that are going up, is that for the same reasons as far as this report talks about inflation and a lot of those pressures that Vancouver City Council is facing? Is that the same reasons that you're seeing or hearing why those fees for Metro Vancouver are also going up? Well, the specific fee for the water hookup, um, yeah. so yes, yes to the general cost of everything is going up uh, as a result of a lot of these sort of inflationary pressures and interest rates and, and the like and labor shortages, which is also sort of articulated in this report. There's a specific item at Metro uh, with water hookups on new construction 
Uh, and that was previously sort of subsidized uh, with what we call municipal assist. And that municipal assist is essentially being reduced. So the, the cost is going to go up quite significantly. And that's raised some alarm bells for uh, builders of new construction that it's these are big costs that are going to have to be passed on to the consumer or the renter, as the case may be. And, um, and so that's kind of separate, but also just, you know, another challenge in the infrastructure. And I think that's driven more by a sense of, of fairness from other municipalities and metro. So it's a bit of a sidebar to this conversation. But, you know, the reality is, is that, um, you know, I know that the mayor has initiated a, a budget task force that will be reporting back in September. And, and, you know, I think he's he's articulated some ideas about how maybe the city could uh, generate revenue to, to offset some of these tax burdens. Um, I know that uh, we're all looking to senior levels of government for tools to, to help us fund a lot of this infrastructure renewal that, that we can't just do from property taxes alone. But the reality is, is that unfortunately, uh, taxes are going to be going up. Right. And, and sorry, just to, to touch on that again, when you talk about the municipal assist and that being reduced from at the Metro Vancouver level, why is that being reduced? Uh, you know, my understanding is that, um, and this actually came about last term, and then it's uh, it's accelerating, um, is that, that uh, other municipalities felt that they were uh, collectively subsidizing higher growth municipalities like like Vancouver and, and Burnaby uh, with with the cost. So the cost, uh, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but for argument's sake, uh, the, I think the municipal assess was about 80%. And so the cost of a new water hookup for an apartment went from $300 to something like $5,000. That's a yeah. that's a big difference. Yeah, for sure. So that's I mean, and that's uh, again, it's not really related to this report, but it's certainly something that I think um, has raised a lot of flags from builders and stuff. And it's it's recognizing that increasingly infrastructure costs are, are cumulative. And you know, when we have older cities like Vancouver, like the Westminster, where we have you know a lot of older older infrastructure uh, that we have to renew, it also adds a pretty significant burden that we are just starting to catch up in. But as anybody can see, we, we, we do need to invest significantly in our infrastructure. And then, of course, we have things like climate change that are driving a whole new level of infrastructure needs that we that aren't even just about renewal anymore. We're talking about, you know, mitigating sea level rise and those kind of things. And we're seeing, you know, areas like the seawall and, and coastal parts of our city where, where king tides and storm surges and, and, and sea level rise are actually starting to, to, to break down significant pieces of infrastructure. There's another line in this report in the budget outlook that talks about the revenue, uh, pr- the, the the operating revenue uh, projects growth of three to five percent in line. It says in line with historical increases. Uh, but then it goes on to say that risks remains in certain revenue streams, such as parking, due to behavioral changes from the pandemic. So uh, clearly the city's not bringing in as much in parking revenue. Uh, it says these financial challenges have exceeded the city's ongoing measures to reduce costs resulting in higher than historical tax increases. So is that is that a, a victim of, of people are doing what you want them to do and that the city has a pretty clear goal of getting people out of their vehicles and getting people biking, walking, taking transit. But then if the parking revenues are down, it almost seems like the, the reward for doing the things that people are asked to do, the reward is higher taxes. I'm, I'm not sure that's the causation. We saw parking revenues take a, a massive hit during COVID because people simply just weren't 
weren't coming downtown and they weren't shopping downtown and they weren't going to games and they, or they just weren't parking. Um, and I think what we're actually seeing a lot of is that people's habits have changed and people have become more comfortable ordering online and not driving and shopping, but actually going, you know, ordering from Amazon or, or what have you. And so I think that we've seen these pretty significant changes on a, on a consumer level that may in fact, obviously people are working uh, remotely a lot more. And I think that's actually probably what's driving a lot of those behavior changes that we see at reduced parking revenue as a result. And, and Councillor, to go back to what you were saying as well about the infrastructure and and making sure that, that that infrastructure is kept up or keeping up with it, making sure it's it's fixed, it's replaced when needed. I mean, there are part there are the areas of the city, and the first one that comes to mind. I mean, the, the washrooms at Spanish Banks West. There's been no water there for months because of a water main break that hasn't been fixed. When people see that, people don't have a lot of faith that the city is even taking care of these core pieces of infrastructure that are necessary. Yeah, no, and I, 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 I appreciate that frustration. And I certainly, you know, I, when I'm, you know, looking at my own ta- tax bill and thinking, yeah, you know, do I, I you know, I live in a, in, a, in a part of town where I feel that, you know, uh, we need a ton of investment and, and it's, it's not, it's not been sort of forthcoming in, in, in here in the Strathcone and the downtown east side. Um, so I, I don't have an excuse or an answer for that, only that it's, it's, it's a matter of priorities and these things do cost money and, and, you know, our staff are trying to prioritize things as best they can with the, with the budget they have before them, but then, you know, also trying to uh, limit the amount of tax increase that, that we, that we foist upon folks every year, but also recognizing that we do have um, like a significant deficit in, in, in labor right now. There's, you know, we're having a hard time finding and retaining skilled labor. Um, and that's, that's definitely had an impact, but obviously that also costs, costs money. So, uh, to, to do all those things, unfortunately, um, is where we start right into these tax increases and recognizing that we've seen the decline in revenue. I think that's one of the things that, that, you know, the mayor's task force is looking for is to try and find revenue generation opportunities. Now there's always a danger with that. So if we're looking for ways to make money, to offset taxes, what are, what, are, what are we sacrificing? Because typically revenue generation involves, you know, sort of uh, a degree of privatization that means that it's maybe not always an equitable approach. And just to, to end on that note, the, the task force and finding, is it also tasked with finding cost savings and potential areas where there could be lines in the budget, where there could be savings and perhaps then people, residents wouldn't see the tax hikes quite as high? Yeah, I, I think on a very high level, I don't. I, my uh, understanding is that this task force isn't going to be going through, you know, a, a, a heavy-duty audit, line-by-line kind of budget audit. Although I will say actually that our new Auditor General office is performing very well and has already found significant savings. And in fact, on our our permitting system, uh, our most recent Auditor General report found that we were underbilling on 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 some of the, the permits um, for new construction and and not actually sort of uh, being revenue neutral as it was intended to be in the Vancouver Charter. So uh, process improvements and stuff that will actually bring back some of that revenue so that we're not losing money on, on that permitting side as much. So, so we do have these tools that are, you know, the Auditor General's office is a relatively new construct. The Mayor's Task Force is definitely going to be coming up, with, I believe, with creative ideas and maybe looking at big picture how we might be able to to, to shave some costs there or make more efficient investments. 
Uh, I'd be very interested to see what they come up with. Uh, We're expecting reports in September. In September. All right. Well, we will continue to see, uh, follow along and see what happens with the budget and the budget outlook. Councillor Fry, thank you as always for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Well, everything from the cost of something that is in most kitchens, I would imagine, to growing meat in a lab. Time to check in with the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain Charlebois joins us once again. And Sylvain, thank you so much for being here today. Good afternoon. We're going to talk about this manufactured meat coming up. But before we do, we've talked about price fixing with bread in this country before. We now have a big ruling coming out of the Ontario Superior Court fining the Canada Bread Company $50 million. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think that uh, Grupo Bimbo, who owns Canada Bread, uh, did the right thing. Uh, So it acquired... Canada Bread uh, in 2014 cleared with some baggage from Maple Leaf Foods, and uh, apparently Maple Leaf Foods never disclosed what was going on with bread at the time. That's why yesterday they announced that uh, they were um, considering legal actions uh, at this time. But I think that, uh, I mean, given what's been happening with food prices, uh, I, I can only imagine how Canadians feel uh about about uh how they trust the food industry this is not this is not good uh so out of so we 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 had eight companies under investigation three of them now have gone forward uh weston bakeries uh, loblaws and now canada bread there are still five other companies so i suspect that the pressure has gone gone way up um and and those companies are uh, are Metro, uh, Sobeys, uh, Walmart, Giant Tiger, and of course, Maple Leaf Foods. This is, if I'm reading it correctly, so it's the highest fine that's been handed down for price, fix day, uh, price fixing in this country. That's according to the Competition Bureau. We've talked about, if you think back to when we got the gift cards as a response to this, did people notice or did, did we notice it, do you think, at the grocery stores that the price of bread was going up and we can now link it to this? Uh, the I mean, I as 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 an observer, there were periods where where when it was very difficult to explain uh, price increases, uh, especially in 2007, 2008. Uh, something was going on. If you remember at the time, I mean, bread prices went up like 75 percent in a year. That's a lot, and so. So it was hard to explain, and so when when Loblaws came out in 2017, I, we thought, oh, that's why. Okay, so companies were breaking the law. That makes sense. <laughs> As an academic, how can you possibly assume that cane companies were breaking the law? And so that's so. Yes, we saw very odd patterns, but. Here's here's what's going on now. I mean, this announcement yesterday came uh, came at a, a very awkward time because if you look at food inflation, uh, what's pushing food prices or the food inflation rate higher right now? There are two main categories: produce and, you guessed it, bakery goods. So I can I can only imagine that Canadians are really really 
concern about what's going on in the bakery section of the grocery store. Oh, definitely. I mean, as part of that, though, is it because of the high cost of butter or what do you think is leading to seeing the baked goods that are so much more expensive now? No, no, it's not butter. It's just real. It's just mainly uh, how the, the 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 industry actually operates. You see, as much as I thought that the greedflation campaign was a little silly, because food inflation is a a macroeconomic global phenomena. I mean, it's just it's just about cost and pricing. Uh, this case is very much uh, points to a clear problem that the Canadian food industry has. Uh, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, in some sectors, we've basically normalized price fixing. I mean, we talk about blackout periods when grocers are asking suppliers not to increase prices for three months. All of them do it at the same time. That's, that's, that's up, upstream collusion. I mean, that's basically what it is. And so I'm, I'm very concerned about the culture. And what's ironic about yesterday is that we needed a Mexican company to tell Canadians to clean up our own food industry. That is a bit of a, a bizarre twist to this, <laughs> definitely. When you think about it, that's exactly what happened yesterday. Right. And, and I guess the Bureau, the Competition Bureau is still investigating price fixing, isn't it? I mean, this is one court ruling and one pretty big fine against a company, but it's certainly not to suggest that that's the only one. Not only that this is not over, I think uh, that the scope of the investigation expanded. As I said, Maple Leaf Foods uh, is one other company involved. And if there is one person who may have sweated a little bit with today would it should be Michael McCain. Uh, and so Maple Leaf Foods uh, did own Canada Bread, but it also sells meat, meat products. Hmm. There are speculation that meat prices are also fixed in Canada. And so my guess is that this is just not over. We're going to continue to see more effort, but I'm just hoping that the Bureau will see will 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 embrace the moment and and use more of its authority because right now all we've seen are companies coming forward with uh with admissions well we will definitely be watching and i know people will be watching the prices as well uh, sylvan you mentioned meat that is another story that's in the news today and u.s regulators have approved the sale of chicken that is made in the lab chicken that comes from the animal cells and grown in a lab environment uh, do you think canada is going to follow suit is this going to be the meat of the future i don't think so <laughs> i don't think so our, our regime our animal protein regime is very different in canada starting with the sm5s i mean supply management is about it's about proteins, animal proteins. Think of the dairy sector, poultry, eggs. All of these sectors operate with government-sanctioned quotas, and those quotas are worth $35 billion, okay? Uh, they do fix prices. There's collusion, but it's legal collusion. <laughs> so we've, we've all embraced that policy for 51 years now. It's, it's a completely different regime. So my guess is that if you want lab-grown chicken, you're going to have to go to the U.S. for a while, but this is going to be a game changer, I think, around the world. Eventually, Canada will have to adapt because the business case for lab-grown meat is, 
is strong. Think of the avian flu. There's no avian flu affecting lab-grown meat. Think of all the waste you generate when you produce chicken. We eat the legs, the wings, the breasts, everything else sometimes goes in the garbage. Most of the time, not all the time, but so in a lab, you grow what you need. You grow what you're going to eat. Uh, and the cost, the cost will likely be lower. So if any government will want to provide an affordable source of animal protein to its population, and, and I think that cultured meat is certainly one option. I, I saw a story on it earlier today, and the reporter took a bite of it. Uh, it was a cooked up. It looked just like chicken that you would see uh, not made in a lab. And he said it tasted just like chicken. He said it was it was pretty good. And and I think people will probably. I, 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 I tasted it in Chicago last year. How was it? Uh, and, and it was a bit of a the the, the setup was a, was like a Pepsi challenge. You had to guess. Yeah. Which piece was authentic and and which piece was cultured? I couldn't I couldn't make the difference. Wow! Did no, you no. even hazard a guess? And so so when people say it's fake meat, it's not fake meat. It's the same cells, except think of it as feeding cells. So right now we're feeding chickens in a barn. Well, in a lab, you're feeding cells to produce the same exact product. So do you think that, like you said, it's going to be a game changer with places I think so. making this? So is the, the logical next step then that it won't just be chicken, it'll be other kinds of meat as well? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so there are right now in the U.S., I believe there are about 150 startups and they've been supported by venture capitalists. I think they've invested well over $15 billion. And right now we've seen projects. Uh, of uh, involving vanilla, cocoa, coffee, uh, beef, pork, chicken. Chicken is the obvious one because it's actually the most popular animal proteins, and there are a lot of biosecurity risks, and we just saw that. I mean, the United States just slaughtered 80 million chickens because of the avian flu. Think of the waste. Yeah. I mean, think of, think of the carbon footprint to produce all that meat. You don't have to worry about that when you actually produce the amount of meat you need without slaughtering, okay, so people are concerned with animal welfare, they're going to like that, uh, without slaughtering, you can do all that and supply what you need to the market. Is there a downside at all or any downside to this, do you think? The downside is consumer acceptance, I think. Uh, a lot of people, as soon as you say lab-grown, as soon as you say cult cultivate, a lot of people are opposed the fact is 25% of Canadians are willing to taste uh, cultivated meat, okay? In 2020, just three years later, this year, it's up to 35%. And if you ask millennials and Gen Zs, that goes up to 60%. Hmm. I would watch for that. <laughs> Interesting, indeed. Uh, Sylvain, we'll leave it there for today. As always, thank you so much for doing this. Take care. Bye-bye. Coming up a bit later on in the show, the 15-minute neighborhood, it can prompt a different reaction depending on who you are talking to, but it is in the news once again because a new study has been put out on this. This was provided by Remax Canada. They launched a 15-minute neighborhood report taking a look at what we're seeing when it comes to 15-minute neighborhoods and why some people seem to think it's a way for government to tell you not to leave your neighborhood, to keep you from moving around, to keep you in one particular area. That is not what this 
report is about. Instead, it says it's to look, talking about lessons from small communities in collaboration with area expert contributors. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that coming up in the two o'clock hour. Right now, though, taking a look at what Port Coquitlam is doing when it comes to trying to keep down the number of fires started and unsafe conditions when we're talking about dry weather, the risk of fires and upping the fines for people caught illegally burning as well as smoking in parks. Joining us to talk more about this is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Mayor West, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. So what is happening then as far as fines? Uh, This is for anyone uh, open air burning, uh, littering cigarette butts or smoking in parks. Yeah, there's a real focus here on the the smoking in parks. And, you know, I have to say it's really disappointing on a number of fronts that this even requires a bylaw uh, because really it should just require a brain, which is you don't throw out cigarette butts. Uh, Nonetheless, unfortunately, um, there have been a number of instances where we've had uh, fires begin because people have uh, thrown out a cigarette butt. And so we're uh, doubling the fine um, from June 1st to September 30th. Uh, hopefully maybe give folks a bit of a wake-up call or act as a deterrent um, uh, so that if they are smoking, they are disposing of butts uh, responsibly and um, not just tossing them around in parks, playgrounds, etc. Do you know how many tickets are generally issued in, in a summer season? When So when the fine was previously, when it was $250, do you know that if the enforcement was happening and people were ticketed for doing that? I don't know the exact amount of the number of tickets that would have been issued. Uh, I do know that we really step up patrols by law in our parks and playgrounds, particularly in the summer months. There's a lot of people who are out there. And so, you know, just want to have a presence. Um, you know, people have been fined. Uh, and, you know, again, it, it's a shame that that's even required because this is pretty common sense stuff. Uh, but, you know, it's another tool that the city has at its disposal and we want to use everything we can to try and reduce the risk of, of fire. Um, our city um, is blessed with, uh, you know, unrivaled access to the outdoors. We've got all sorts of uh, parks and natural areas, and it, it becomes very busy in the summer. It's a great part of living in Port Coquitlam, but it comes with it a responsibility to keep the area safe as well. Right. And what happens then if somebody is issued one of these $500 fines, say, for either littering cigarette butts or for smoking in a park? What happens if they don't pay it? Well, the city has enforcement measures to uh, uh, to see through, through a process that does result in them uh, having to pay it. And uh, we're determined to, to see it through. I mean, I think that's the key point on any bylaw a city is doing. Cities like to create a lot of bylaws, um, but it's really about enforcement. You know, bylaws aren't worth the paper they're written on if you're not out enforcing uh, and following through. And so have been really clear with our expectation as a city to our bylaw staff that this is not just a bylaw that exists on paper. It is a bylaw that will be enforced and that they're out there proactively uh, enforcing it. And, you know, the reality is that's important because, A, we need to reduce the, the risk of of fire, particularly when it's hot and dry, and B, quite frankly, and I say this as a, as a dad of two young kids, when I'm out with my family at a playground or in a park, um, I don't really want to have to uh, deal with people smoking 
uh, and infringing on our ability to enjoy our time outdoors. Uh, smoking is prohibited in our parks and playgrounds. Uh, and, you know, that that's not an appropriate place for people to be going and smoking. Right. Although I would imagine, too, it's quite a challenge for enforcement officers. It's not like they can be everywhere all the time. And I think what you just said, anybody that's been to a park or a beach, not only in Port Coquitlam, but anywhere, I think in Metro Vancouver, you will encounter people smoking, whether it's tobacco or vaping or smoking cannabis. It does happen all the time. Yeah, it does. And I'm a realist about this because you're right. Um, Bylaw can't be everywhere all the time. And, um, you know, we've got a number of areas in our city uh, that people uh, come together. And so it's a large area to cover. Um, And and so, you know, this is not to say that it's never going to happen, but it is to say that uh, we're taking steps to try and address it, to try and reduce it. Um, You know, and there's a a fairly significant penalty for those who do get caught. Um, And bylaws going to be out proactively. um, And uh, if they do catch people, they will be fined. The city will see that through, uh, and hopefully that uh, sends a message to to other folks. You know, I also think too there's uh, maybe some societal or community pressure that gets built as well. Um, you know, I have personally told someone who has thought nothing of coming and smoking in the middle of a kid's playground to not do that, um, and occasionally I get uh, you know a, a couple of words uttered to me. Um, not all that pleasant, but, you know, they, they move along. And, um, you know, not that it's all of our job to do that, but, uh, you know, hopefully you get some of that pressure as well. Right. Did they know you were the mayor when you did that? Well, I didn't introduce myself <laughs> as such, so I, I don't know. And in that case, I was just a dad with a, a six-year-old and a two-year-old thinking, like, um, you're not here with any kids. Uh, there's probably a lot of places you can go smoke if you need to. How about not doing it at a playground, buddy? Right. Okay. Um, and uh, and again, yeah, not encouraging people because I've seen that happen as well too. When when people don't appreciate the advice so much, or it can kind of escalate. So so yeah. uh, people be be mindful of that. I'm curious though, because this also because this also covers open burning. Which is more of an issue? Do you think people that are open air burning or cigarettes? Well, the experience in terms of the the fires that we've had to attend to has been from cigarette butts um, and not the the open burning. That's nowhere near as prevalent, um, so we haven't seen that um, to the same degree that we've seen the the smoking and the people just tossing a cigarette butt. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt it presents a a considerable risk, um, again, particularly when you talk about some of the hot, dry summers that we've been having recently so um you know the reality is the vast majority of us are are responsible we use common sense and you know there's no issues unfortunately there is a portion of the population that uh, that seems to elude uh and uh, and that's why we have to have some of these rules in place would this apply to somebody as well that threw a cigarette butt say out of a moving vehicle uh, for sure, there's. I mean, and there are other um, uh, bylaws and laws that apply to uh, to that as well. Um, and so, you know, um, it, it it is pretty encompassing in addressing all sorts of risk that um, that may be presented by people who are um, disposing of cigarette butts improperly.
And and just to, to clarify again, this is any kind of smoking, whether it's a cigarette, whether it's cannabis, yeah, whether it's vaping, cannabis, anything like that. Yeah. Um, it, uh, smoking is uh, prohibited in our in our parks and playgrounds and public spaces. Period. Um, and then you know, there's obviously a, a series of escalating fines um, depending on um, the behavior. You know, again, you know, cigarette dis- uh, butt uh, disposal and stuff like that. So, um, but yes, it does apply to uh, all forms of smoking. All right. And I'm just curious, and I know that this is specifically because of the chance of wildfire and starting fires in in the city, in the area. But because we've had other councils and other councillors and other places bring this up, where does the law stand in POCO on doing illicit drugs in parks? Well, actually, we are uh, are moving to strengthen the prohibition on that. There's one uh, that was already in place and has been in place for quite some time. However, because of some of the changes that the province has made recently, uh, we feel that we need to make some amendments to uh, give us the ability to address those issues. And so um, I expect that at our upcoming council meeting, uh, which is on Tuesday, uh, council will be considering strengthening the bylaw and making some amendments to give our uh, bylaw officers the tools they need to be able to address any concerns there. So keeping keeping it current based on what has now developed provincially. Would it ban illicit drug use in parks? Yes, it would. All right. And that's happening on Tuesday. That's correct. All right. Mayor West, thank you, as always, for coming on the show. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we know the population is growing. More people are going to be moving to Canada to the urban centres. We also know there is a huge push to build more housing. So what does that mean for neighbourhoods and this idea of a 15-minute city? That is the focus of a new report. It was put out earlier today by Remax Canada. So let's take a look at some of the findings and what this report is looking at. Tim Hill is a Remax Vancouver broker with All Points Realty and joins us now to talk more about this. Tim, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. It's uh, something that has been getting a lot of attention, uh, mostly positive, I think, although there are questions uh, being asked as well about this idea of a 15-minute city. Can you tell us a little bit more of how do you define a 15-minute city? Uh, Well, in a nutshell, 15-minute city is a planning concept where your daily necessities and services are nearby. So your shopping, amenities, healthcare, work, uh, everything's within a 15-minute walk, bike ride, or transit from your location. All right. So there would be a lot of people in the more urban centres that are already living in, in scenarios like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the downtown core where you can walk to everything, you don't need a car. And that's one of the concepts here as well as uh, trying to uh, eliminate the car that's become king over the last uh, last while with people. And so with Remax Canada looking at this, and what specifically were you looking at? Was it how feasible it would be to create more of these types of scenarios or if people would be open to it or what kind of things were you looking at? I'd say a bit of it is awareness as well. So um, we want to look at diversity. And so how do we diversify our housing mix? Uh, and, and how do we make things more walkable to people that are out there? Um, so as you hit the suburbs, things become more car-focused. Um, you might get more detached from family, as an example. 
um, especially going over the last few years where people have been working from home and moving further out, uh, there's been a disconnect there. So how do we bring people back together as well? That's, I think, a key concept of our report. Is it a, a way as well, or that the, it's different types of neighborhoods? Like you said, if you talk about the suburbs, it's not it's not sprawling single family homes and subdivisions and, and such. It's it's more compact, so it's it's not something that that will be for everybody. Absolutely right. It's just like a, a condo with the view is not the same for some people downtown as a house with a yard in in say Langley, for example. Right. Uh, what are some of the benefits then, do you think, of, of moving in this direction or at least exploring where this might be more, more useful or more, more kind of fitting in with, with the, the current building and fitting in with the infrastructure? I mean, two things are, are being more green. So if we have less cars on the road, we've got less emissions. Right, so people can access their amenities easier without having to get into a car. Um, and costs, right? We're we're all feeling the pain of inflation right now. You don't have to have a car payment or an insurance payment. That alone can save you, say, a thousand dollars a month, perhaps. Right? Oh, right, for sure, for sure. And and looking at that too. And and again, I know some people will hear this, and for for some reason, this idea in some cases, has been kind of uh, labeled government control or government wanting to restrict people's movements, which which I don't think is the point. It's it's still the choice of if you want to be in your car, if you want to commute, or if this appeals to you. Absolutely, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we've, we've seen the theories, heard of them, but, um, you know, our... I think our central idea for the report is more diversity, right? And looking at from a city perspective when they're planning, can we plan better? How do we plan better, right? So having a different focus, a different why on why are you building this here? Not just approving something that is good enough, right? Um, and we know that cost of living is expensive. If we can diversify our housing mix, uh, potentially also then uh, make some more entry level homes, right, for pricing in different areas and not just uh, big and expensive, right? So having that kind of balance so we can also uh, have, you know, different income types uh, with the different housing types in different neighbourhoods. Is it, how does it fit, do you think, then, in with this push for housing, and especially in Metro Vancouver, and the provincial government has told councils, look, you need to build more housing, you need to get on this. Uh, if not, uh, there, is going to, there are going to be cases where we intervene. How does something like this fit in with that push to really get more housing built? Uh, you know, I think it's right in line because uh, part of the 15-minute neighbourhood focuses uh, away from detached homes. Right. Um, and if you take a single family lot, if you could have a fourplex on that same lot, that's a better use. Um, if it's a more efficient floor plan, uh, we don't need 2000 square feet if 1200 will do the same. Right. So it's, it's having that, that forward thinking as well and not, not just thinking about today, but thinking about the future. Um, you know, what do we want to provide to our future generations? Because they're going to be living uh, for decades and decades further, too. Right. And what do you think then, or what does it do as far as amenities and, and perhaps changing how builds are, are done when it comes to parking or what kinds of parking? Yeah, well, I know, I mean, parking it is still important, but maybe less important to try to push the envelope for people to, to drive less or own less cars. Um, I think mixed use development, so commercial with residential above are a great way to help with this because you're, you're bringing amenities, restaurants, gyms, or whatever it might be that can be right there and they're closer to homes now by having that mixed-use development. 
And what other findings, or, or when looking at this, and I know Royal LePage Canada looking at this like right across the country, were there other findings or other things that, that came to light that maybe we haven't been focused on or haven't been talking about a lot? Well, I think it's good to get this out there, right? It's an opinion as well, right? It's a, it's an idea. Um, like you mentioned earlier, it's not going to be for everybody, but um, I think this does push the envelope of what, what do we build in the future and uh, getting out of our rut of doing the same thing over and over again because it's not really working. Uh, and when we talk about some of the areas as well, and I think the survey uh, touched on this as well, in that it's it's the accessible or available transit options and that people would be happy to take transit in certain scenarios if it was more accessible or, or if it was uh, comparable time-wise, perhaps, mm-hmm. maybe not the same as driving, but but not three times or four times the time commitment to do that, that, that people would be more willing to do this if it was more accessible. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Transit accessibility is a huge factor. If it's not convenient, uh, I mean, I do think to some extent, you know, sometimes we get lazy, right? So if it's not easy, um, you know, if you can order your food on an app versus go get it, people do it. So if you have to, you know, hustle and bustle to get to transit, you might not be as excited. Now, with that said, the more people that are driving to and from work or to and from uh, somewhere that they want to go, that creates more cars on the road, uh, more congestion, and therefore a longer commute. Uh, if we're able to give transit accessibility to more people out there, um, you will get less people on the road and maybe find a bit of a balance of both commute times. All right. Well, it's interesting, uh, an interesting report and interesting findings from that uh, as well. Tim, we will leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us for talking more about this. Hey, thanks, Joe. Have a great day.